stand up for yourself and I'll back you up because problems don't solve themselves I'll tell you what instead of would or could I think you should draw a line in the sand and stand your ground it's for your own good Hello, my name is Roy Poyan. I'm the founder of Families Impacted by Opioids and your host today for The Voice of Families and Addiction. I want to thank you for joining us today. We're going to go through some interesting material. And what we're going to talk about today is change. And when you start to think about what we're doing as a family member and we're uh, looking at the life and the, and the struggles, really, of a person that's dealing in our family with substance use disorders, one of the things that we're saying to ourselves is, why can't he change? Or why can't she just will themselves out of that? And we're going to get into later on another episode that, that this is a brain disease. So we won't spend our time today talking about that. But what I'd like to do is layer, layer a foundational understanding of what has science and, and, and psychiatry and psychology and neurology, what have they all determined as being the, um, the pathways of change. Because these are thought patterns, these are emotions, these are, uh, in many cases, neuronal firings, and, and they are measurable in, in certain ways with certain types of, um, of uh, capacity for uh, like PET scans and, and things of that nature, where a dye is introduced to see what the brain activity is. So what we wanna do is we wanna take a look at some of the rudimentary industry standards. And um, Petraska de Clemente were two behavioral uh, therapists back in about 1986. And they had created a, a, a trans-theoretical change model that um, basically identifies the stages of change. If you're reading a book, it'll say SOC, stages of change. And for that, there's five stages of change. This is very helpful for us. And let me explain why. If, if you're like me, when you're looking at somebody and you're saying, they just need to have a consequence. And if they have a consequence and they understand that this is what's being requested of them, then they should be able to, on their own, come to the conclusion that a change is needed. That's not the case when it comes to addictions and substance use disorders and things where uh, the neuronal firing and dopamine and the hippocampus and the frontal cortex, uh, prefrontal cortex for executive thinking. When you start to get into the brain, it, it's not as simple as um, just do it. But we also find that we're not really set up that way either. I mean, even if we could do it, and, and many times we do, um, there's, there's actually a process to change. And I believe, and a lot of other people have, have complimented the same thought, I mean, I got my thought from their thought, is that we, we don't know what it is that they're thinking, so how can we determine what they should have thought? And I'm not trying to get into the complexities of which came first, but in, in, in an actual understanding, if our stimulus to them, which is, I'd like to see you change, I'd like to see you do things this way, um, boy, there's a lot to take into account when we're looking at that. 
And that's what I want us to take a look at today. What, what should we be taking an account for? Well, I'm going to go through that with you. And we're going to look at the five stages of change. And here they are. The first one is pre-contemplation. The second one is contemplation. Pre-contemplation, contemplation. And then the third is preparation. And the fourth is action. And the fifth is maintenance. And you might say, okay, Roy, are you done? <laughs> it's pretty simple. I wish it was that simple. I mean, those are just the titles. And now comes in all the science. So when somebody is in pre-contemplation, then where are they? What does that mean to us? Well, we may be looking at a person, for example, that um, is being addressed and somebody is saying, Jerry, you're drinking too much. Well, for one, what is too much? For two, kind of like, what business is it of yours if I'm drinking? And for three, I don't feel I have a problem. I think you've got the problem because you think I'm drinking too much. And number four, now because you said that, they're moving into a fight or flight. They're being emotionally like attacked. So they're going to start to use other types of mental uh, prepared you know, paths that they have used in the past. Is this going to be trauma for us? Is this just a light conversation? Or are you going to start telling me that you're going to do things that are will disrupt my life because you know and you feel that I am drinking too much. So with that in mind, if I don't feel that I'm drinking too much, how likely am I to change? And so we may say, well, then let's get them to a position that they'll identify what we know to be true based on certain scales on alcohol consumption. We know that they're drinking too much. Why don't they know it? Well, the fact is they very well might know it. But they may be using pleasure and memory of how they felt when they last drank and, you know, a couple of other things that are actually coming into play uh, in terms of dopamine and, and other synaptic firings that, you know, make this whole topic much more medical than psychological and mental health-ish. But really, it's a blend of all that. Once again, I'm going to go back to you don't know what they're thinking. You only know what you're thinking and what you want. So when you approach them, I would recommend, and a lot of the sciences and papers that you'll read suggest that you, you be empathetic first. Step back from the situation and understand they're not ready to move into action yet. Remember, that's the fourth stage. So when a father might say to uh, their daughter, if you go back to using again, I'm going to take everything you own in your room, and I'm going to take you, and I'm going to put them all out on the street. There, I said it. Didn't like saying it, but I said it. I laid down the law. Well, sorry, but you probably didn't affect change. You might have affected a response, but it's not a meaningful change. And the reason that you did that is that's what you have in your toolbox. That's about as much as you know to do. And God bless you for trying. However, let's have you learn more about change so that you can proactively say, you know what? Terry is in a situation right now where she doesn't understand that this is doing this to her life, these things to her life. And that because of this 
habit that's developing into an addiction, um, it's now going to play out. It's now going to play out not just with her life, start to ruin every member of our family, all of her friends, her employer, the school, wherever she's involved in, this will go with her and ruin that. So we love her and we don't want to see her do this. Well, good. I mean, it's, it's good that you, you love them and you care about them. But if you really loved them, you, you learn maybe a better way of expressing what their options are. So when they sit there and say, this is what I'm doing, they're basically saying, I don't know how to do anything different. These are called the three D's in pre-contemplation. And they feel demoralized. That's the second D. And that demoralization comes from, I've tried to quit and I failed. Well, no, you didn't fail. You just needed to tweak a couple of things and, you know, it's a bump in the road. Substance use disorders is a journey and, and you will have turns and dips and highs and lows. So you can expect all those, and they can be demoralizing. They can ruin our self-esteem when we're going through this. Um, they, they, they ruin our self-confidence. So we're naming a couple of things here that are being pressed down that are really important to us being uplifted. We're not really ready to make a change emotionally because we're feeling demoralized. We're not really ready to make a change because we don't know how. What are the what are the steps towards making a change? You know, well, you just make it. No, no, <laughs> time out. We already said that that's not the case. There's a there's a way of doing it. <clears throat> so when they are admitting to themselves, typically, I I don't know how to make a change. I don't I don't know what they're asking of me, and I've already tried to make a change. Demoralization, and it didn't work out. I don't want to be shamed. I don't want to feel guilty. I don't want to fail again in front of everybody else. These are very real scenarios for them internally. Remember we said, you don't know what they're thinking. Well, in a lot of cases, from a lot of studies, this is what they're thinking. So much so that under pre-contemplation, Petraska has identified three Ds. That's don't know how, demoralized, and defensive is the third D. Now, in the third D, defensive is how do you see them being defensive? Oh, well, they, they get really nasty with you and they start saying things that they normally wouldn't say and probably don't mean. Well, that's true. But you'll also see them turn inward. Turning inward is a way of being defensive. Think of like an army attacking you and you put up walls to defend yourself. So you turn inward. Um, going silent is being defensive. Um, Disattending, meaning you're not attending to the things that you would normally be very attentive to. That, that's, that's being defensive. Remember, these are, this is number three of the three Ds inside of pre-contemplation. Because we're wondering, well, why are they in pre-contemplation? We just said that this, these are the behaviors that you're going to see. The why they feel this way, that comes from therapy. That comes from a good counselor that understands the five stages of change understands cognitive behavioral therapy and self-talk and some of the other methodologies that they have for therapy, which is why when somebody is dealing with substance use disorders, it's very helpful for them, especially once they've gotten out of an IOP, to continue on a, their own self-administrative 
continuum of treatment plan. You can write your own one. And it should include things like peer-to-peer, -peer, MAT, mental health, attending um, a Narcotics Anonymous or AA meetings, some of the 12-step programs. These are all supportive in terms of your creating an environment of, you know, continuous, uh, sustainable, successful recovery. Well, understanding the stages of changes of stage, <laughs> understanding the stages of change is a critical part of the family's ability to support this environment. So let's take a look at other areas. Internalizing, turning outward, meaning more or less projecting, um, displacing, saying, well, listen, this isn't my problem, this is your problem. You know, if you weren't doing this, I wouldn't be doing that. Um, that that's that's pre-contemplation. Rationalizing, well, you know, I don't do it, you know. I only do binging maybe once a week. It's not like I do it every day. And it's like, well, you do do it more than once a week, and, and even doing it, period, isn't healthy for you. So, you know, we're still talking about the same topic here that you need to change from. And then intellectualizing is another one. So with that in mind, pre-contemplation has the three Ds. They don't know how to change, so they don't change, and they don't know the next step. They feel demoralized, meaning I've tried this before and it didn't work, and so I'm kind of like I don't want to embarrass myself again, and they're feeling defensive. I'm sure you can appreciate the fact that that needs to change, okay, and that we can help to support them. And in the second part of today's presentation, we'll talk about how to motivate them almost like in an interviewing fashion, how to motivate them to go from pre-contemplation to contemplation. But let's now talk about contemplation. Contemplation is kind of a, it's, 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 a, it's a selection of criteria. It's where you're sitting there saying, all right, I don't like where I am, and I want to do things differently, which is a great place to be, by the way. And they're starting to say, what are my options, okay? Um, what are my choices? And then, then they want to validate, well, not this one, but maybe that one. That's too far. I don't want to go all the way to California or Florida. But, you know, Pennsylvania would be nice. It's right around the corner. You know, so you're, you're kind of like blending in. You're, you're negotiating with yourself or with others in contemplating. You're contemplating the change. And then preparation. Preparation is an implication of the results that you're now selecting a particular thing that you're going to do and you're going to get prepared to go do it. So you may ask somebody to assume a certain role with you in making these decisions or you may help ask somebody, can I assign you this task to get this done while I work on these other things? You're preparing, okay? And, and the knowledge you're gathering in order to be properly ready to take action. And action is the fourth step. Wow, we had to go through all of this just to get to action? Well, it could happen like that. It could happen in a split second. Or it could happen over a week or a month. But it does take these steps to where we are in a position of pre-contemplation. I don't really see this as being a problem to, all right, I do see it as a problem, and now I want to um, start to put the pieces together that I can act on. I'll prepare by understanding those pieces better and you know, solicit other people to help me to get this done, and then I'll take action. 
So act in the action standpoint, you're now taking a, um, a plan of action, who will do what, by when, how will it be completed? And, and if, you're, if you're smart about this, uh, you'll add a step of after the step is taken, confirm that it created the desired result. So a good plan of action would include that. So now we're in the fifth one, maintenance. Okay, we've made a decision and we're moving forward, but now we have to you know, make sure that the change that we enacted is sustainable, is pragmatic, it works, it's giving us the results that we wanted. So all of these kind of like transparency uh, reviews are being done. In some cases in marketing, they call it cognitive dissonance where, or you, you've heard the term buyer's remorse. That, that's a form of maintenance where you say, you know, <laughs> you just bought a Buick and you're, standing, you're sitting at the stoplight and somebody pulls up in a, a really nice, you know, Fiat and you're sitting there thinking, oh, for the same amount of money, I could have gotten that. That's cognitive dissonance, where you're questioning the quality of your decision. So that's where we stand right now with the five stages of change. I would love to be able to say to you, does anybody have any questions? <laughs> but that's, that's not this forum. So at another time, at another place. So let's move on to uh, the next area that, that really is vital. And that is, it's kind of like a, so Roy, that's just static information. And, and I'm just like, when I think about the voice of the family and, and I look at what we do in these different presentations and we, we put out information and you know, you've taken time to get a babysitter and you come down to this like meeting at the school or the church or you know, maybe, a, maybe an office building conference room and you're ready to learn and somebody sits there and says, these five things are really critical for you to know. And then they look at you and they say, okay, thank you for showing up today. And it's just like, Oh, are you kidding me? We're a family. We have to talk about this. We have an internal voice, an external voice, and we, we've got to maturate this. You just can't give me information and then not tell me how to use it. Boy, we do that all the time. And I especially see it in this industry of, of recovery. Uh, they're notorious for just giving you information and not, not sitting there saying, okay, and by the way, here's how you use this. Here's how you use coping skills to... to to apply this to your life. Well, we're not going to cheat you in that way. And families impacted by opioids, we certainly don't because we give you the coping skills on how to take the, the material that we've given you and actually apply it to your lives. But in this case, we're going to also do that. So we're not the only ones that thought this way. Um, William, William Rolnick, Miller and Rolnicks, uh, they're, they're, they're the ones that started out by, excuse me, um, it, it's William Miller and Rolnick. And, and what they've done is they have created a model that fits into the stages of change, recognizing that to just tell people that this is pre-contemplation and not really give them an effective way on how to move the person to contemplation, um, not in the least amount of time, but in the most way that they're involved in it, they own it, it's theirs. It's not like we sat in a session and and suggested this, and they're kind of like, okay, sure, I'll go out and do that. Yeah. Well, no, usually in motivational interviewing, they're the ones saying, this is what I want to do, and they really mean it, because it was their idea. What we find out is in the first two, which is pre-contemplation, contemplation, those are all kind of like mentally experimental processes. What we're doing is, 
And I want, I want this word to really hold and stick with you. We're consciousness raising, okay? We are raising their consciousness about the topic. If you're gonna do anything in pre-contemplation, that's probably the most valuable conversation, you know, sentences, uh, discussions that you can have is to raise their consciousness of there is a change that is available for you and we can show you how. But you have to be, you know, interested in, in listening and then making this yours, not me telling you, but making it yours, which means it's, it's more you doing the talking than it is us. So when we start to say that, well, we're talking about how, how safe is this relationship? Because um, I'm, I'm really not going to experiment with something like pre-contemplation and contemplation with you and let you into my internal thought life uh, and then take advantage of me or you know, like a, a emotionally abuse me if, if, I, if you're not a trusted person. So the quality of the relationship is really important. My ability to do self-reflection is really important. So when you're sitting outside this person's life and you're looking at them and you're saying, they're not taking any time for self-reflection. I mean, I've got to bring up all the examples. Well, that's the wrong side of the conversation. They should be bringing up their self-reflection, not you telling them what their self-reflection is. So in that term, maybe emotional arousal is another area of experimental process, which is found in the um, two areas of pre-contemplation and contemplation. You want them to emotionally engage in the topic that you're discussing. And then kind of a an awareness that this is going to give you a social liberation. You're going to feel more in control of your life. When you get out of pre-contemplation, where you're denying that everybody's got it wrong and you've got it right, and you know that you probably don't have it right, that, that, that's an entrapment mentally. So, you know, they may push back is one way of phrasing it, but in a way, they really do want the undertow of, I'm going to push back, but don't give up on me. Please, don't give up on me. Maybe show me empathy and show me, give me little things that I can hold on to. Show me that it's safe. Um, show me that this isn't just you instructing me, but it's more about a relationship that you're having with me. Then that gives me the ability to move forward with you. So that, that's where that sits in pre-contemplation, contemplation. The other parts are behavioral. And that is where you're moving into preparation, action, and maintenance. Those are very actionable items. So you'll want to use a stimulus to assist them in each of the phases. Kind of like, would you like, you know, in, in the area of preparation, um, you know, I, I've actually picked up some brochures from local treatment centers, and uh, here's four of them that I picked up. How about if you go out and find another five, and, you know, if you'd like to, we could take a look at them together. You're the final decision maker, but, you know, in, in getting prepared to make a decision as to what's best for you, uh, you kind of have to have this information. Um, well, that's nice. You know, that's really nice. As opposed to, you got to go to treatment. <laughs> well, you know, let's face it. If they thought that way, they probably would have done it, and you would have needed to say it. So, so now we're moving into pre-contemplation, and, and, and we're, we're saying, well, okay, Roy, in motivational interviewing, what would we do in pre-contemplation? Well, actually, 
you want them to start to consider where they are. And that's that self-reflection part that we talked about in experimental. And what we're going to probably do is use an assessment tool. And that's why we say in the Get an Assessment uh, presentation, which is seminar number 10 of the 32 key issues seminars that we have, um, that particular topic talks about you, you get a mental health assessment, you get a medical assessment, and you get an addiction assessment. And we kind of went through this in uh, ESPRIT, uh, one of our presentations on this podcast, where you, know, you do a screening and a brief intervention if it's needed, and, and, and then you do a referral to treatment. So with that in mind, that acronym ESPRIT really says what's being done. But now we're more at the let's do an assessment. We're going to use an assessment tool. And from that is going to drive a, a diagnosis. And once we have a diagnosis from the assessment, we'll be able to determine at what stage this is in, mild, moderate, or severe. And then from that, we'll be able to take certain like ASAM and other types of protocols that have treatment algorithms and determine what's the best plan of treatment going forward. The plan of treatment is the goal. So it's the goal from what? Well, from pre-contemplation. With a person that's dealing with with substance use disorders, that's the change. So everything that we talked about, getting getting somebody to take me over to, you know, Pensacola or get me over to, you know, uh, Indian Town Gap in PA, you know, all that and you know, figuring out who's going to pay for it and then showing up and packing a duffel bag and saying goodbye to my employer for three weeks. And yeah, all of that was to get you to treatment. Because nothing is really going to move forward until they get into treatment. Everything that we talk about with somebody that's in substance use disorders, regardless of what phase they're in, is about recovery. Why would we spend time talking about their usage and addiction? What value is that? We need to have them focused on what are their goals and how can they move into those goals. Well, the way that they're going to move into their goals is to understand that change is required. And that's what we're talking about here today. So in contemplation, which is the next one, we, we, we're kind of saying, okay, let, let's, let's explore let, let's, let's not just jump into, okay, well, you need to do this, this, or this. And we do this all the time. You know, you're going to go down to this treatment center, and, you know, if not this one, then that one. It's like, well, hold on, slow down. You know, if you want them to own it, and you do, then stop making the statements for them and be more of a conversation. Remember, this is a pre-contemplation. This is a relationship. This is empathy. This is you understanding that, you are negotiating in order to help them by creating an environment where change is going to be safe and possible because you know what comes next. Because after you explore, you're going to elicit their response and then you can offer something, but not until then. And then if you need to, you can provide something. So with that in mind, there are steps inside of contemplation that when you take a look at motivational interviewing, that's what, that's what you'll find is in that kind of content. So preparation is the next one, and deciding how to change is a part of the preparation. It's kind of like, think of preparation as being process or productivity 
or kinetic in terms of there's a physical action taking place. And, and now you've stepped out of the, what we said was the experimental part, and you're into the behavioral part of the five stages, which are the next three. So now your behavior is going to show, oh, okay, you know, I mean, he did pick up this, uh, these materials, or she did make these phone calls, and um, she now knows that her HMO will pay this much, and she needs money for a deductible or, you know, copay, and, um, you know, she's understanding what she needs in order to get out there to where she is trying to, um, to show up to. So when we do that, we're going to look at then action. Action is going to be the next opportunity for us to see the behavior. And um, we, want to, we want to be ready to support it. You know, you, you don't have to get out there with banners and balloons and, oh, my gosh, you know, she, she woke up today. She's moving to the door. Oh, my gosh, she's getting in the car, you know. But you do need to recognize that each step for them is a step for success when they're moving into action to make a change happen. And in a very subliminal way, it should be celebrated. When we're making steps to improve our situation, no matter how small or how large, they are steps just the same. And recognizing that creates an environment that says, this is a safe place. And I'm in a relationship with people that really show that they care. That's very important when you're looking at change. So now we're in the action part. We've written a plan of action, and we've assigned roles and responsibilities, and people are coming through for us. And what we had planned to do is actually taking place. This feeds on itself, and now we need to sustain it. Now we need to do maintenance, which requires self-reflection. It requires transparency, meaning you're not going to kid yourself, and you're not going to take the time to kid others. You're going to be accountable, and you're going to allow for monitoring both yourself and in other ways, it may be that your care plan, your continuity of care uh, requires that of you. You're going to have goals that help you to understand. You'll have metrics, although we'll call them that, but you'll have ways of numerically saying, hey, I'm 52 days into, or I'm 90% compliant with, or, you know, there are ways that we can do that in terms of setting up, you know, a numeric way of representing how things are going in terms of maintenance. So... What, what does all this mean in terms of what we're doing? Well, what we're doing is we're planning. We're planning ahead of the curve. <laughs> That's the whole point. That's the voice. That's the voice of families and addiction. It's about planning. Hey, what about yourself? What about your commitment to making a change by watching these podcasts, by getting on and reviewing on YouTube Fentanyl and Families in Harm's Way, the 32 episodes that take you through your entire journey as a family and all the key issues you're going to face. What about you picking up Petraska DiClemente's book or Millard and Walnick's book on motivational interviewing? Because everything that we've said here in all the materials that Families Impacted by Opioids produces as content is what is pulled down from science, from empirically proven studies, from clinical articles and professional journals. None of it's ours. So if we did it, you could do it. What's stopping you from doing it? Ah, change. That's right. 
and you don't have a plan, very possibly. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. That's not criticism. But by you understanding that planning is a way to mentor in the process of moving forward. And guess what? When you participate in the five stages of change for yourself, contributing to somebody else and creating a good environment, knowing that you know the steps that are coming next, and you're, you've, you've set yourself up to be available to support those in a very positive and informed way, because now you're doing this material before it's needed, and you can do that. You have the luxury of time, and you can pull out resources, and we want you to. Our information is just a starting point of your learning. It's not the end all. So we, we, we absolutely we insist, if we could insist, will you allow us to insist? We're going to insist that you use this only as a starting point. And that means you're going to do a lot more on each of these topics, and you're going to drill down and find out you know, exactly what that means for you and how you can use it. So goal setting, how good are you at that? Because if you're not a very good goal setter, then how can you ask somebody that you're trying to help to be a good goal setter? And they're going to see it. They, they know you or you wouldn't be in their life. So if you haven't been a good goal setter, then step up to the plate and start to set some really good goals. Don't set goals for them, okay? Cut it out. That's enabling, okay? That's number 10 of the 10 types of enabling. You don't set goals for others. You set goals for yourself. And in that, you have control. So start with the end in mind. That's what we suggest. That's Stephen Covey's work um, on first things first. And a lot of great work is done there. But what you do is you backwards plan. We used it in the Army, too. Uh, classic example, I was a field artillery officer. So I had to plan the battlefield and the movement to contact with infantry and engineers and armor tanks and close air support coming in. So that, that was my field of, you know, where my responsibilities were. So when, when we started to say, okay, uh, how are we going to plan this out? I would say, okay, we've occupied the hill or the town. What happened right before then? And then what happened right before then? And I backed my way all the way up to Garrison, where we were sitting there saying, okay, we're writing a plan that we just got an off, uh, uh, a set of orders from division that uh, the battalion is moving out on this date, and we're going to load up our, our tanks and infantry vehicles on these rail cars, and that's going to get us into the theater of operation, and da-da-da-da-da. So backwards planning is the most effective because you leave fewer things out, number one, and you typically stay in your lane and on topic, number two. So learn from the professionals, and you might want to consider that as a style for uh, what you need in terms of each stage. So building hope. Yeah, we, we, we actually have to purposefully build in hope. How often do you use the word hope? I hope so. I hope you use it a lot. Because hope is critical for yourself. You might sit there and say, well, all right. It's critical for the person that's misusing substances. Yeah, all right, okay. You're just, you're, just, you're just displaced. The fact of the matter is, and you have to be willing to admit this, hope is your best friend. It sits there all the time. Hope never leaves you. You leave hope, but hope doesn't leave you. You just need to learn how to tap into it, which means you have to let go of what's blocking it 
and let it come in. And when you do that, it's going to bring a bunch of its friends and all of them will become your friends too. So affirming words allows you to hear things that are hopeful. So use words that affirm. Use words that are empathetic. Use sentences and phrases that are kind and fruitful. Give a high presence to the idea that hope matters. And then review your plans and goals with hope in mind. Review pre-contemplation with hope in mind and contemplation and preparation and action and maintenance. Use preparation, contemplation, and, and, and action and, and, and maintenance with planning. Use pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, action, and maintenance with goal setting. And basically, take a lifestyle inventory today. Don't delay. Take a lifestyle inventory of how you are currently living your life. Where do you spend your time? Who do you spend it with? What do you pay for it? How much uh, emotion do you pay into it, not just financial? Um, how do you include others? How do you exclude others? What is your lifestyle? Write it out. Because until you know who you are, you're not going to really be able to help the person with who they are. And you're going to be much better able to straddle and traverse the different turns and twists that this journey with substance use disorders will present to you. Your lifestyle, as you understand it, and the way that it is, is all that matters. I'm not asking you to ask somebody else to tell you what your lifestyle is. This is your definition of, this is who I am, this is how I conduct myself. And if you feel that you need any changes done, <laughs> well, guess what? You now have the model that tells you exactly how to make those changes. And it's written in books, and it's on YouTube, and you can have a lot of fun in terms of learning something new for yourself and be a real advantage for others. Now, in the Family Solution Finder Learning Series, which is a part of the 32 Key Issue Seminars that the Families Impacted by Opioids website has, that's familiesimpactedbyopioids.com, and in there is a portion called the Three Ds Coping Skills, and that's determine a solution, develop a decision, and design a plan of action, three Ds. Apply the three Ds to preparation, to pre-contemplation. Apply the three Ds to contemplation. Apply the three Ds to preparation. Apply the three Ds to action. And apply the three Ds to maintenance. They are your coping skills. Become really strong. I mean like really strong in how you use these three coping skills. Use these three coping skills on everything that goes on in your life. And you will find the quality of your life is more in line with what you want it to be and less so where you're being pulled around by circumstances and responses. Well, that pretty much concludes our review of the five stages of change. And as we had suggested, the Miller and Rolnick material on motivational interviewing is an industry standard. Both of these work collaboratively with each other. I'm not expecting that you'll become like a counselor in this. But I do think that you could appreciate our discussion today. This is your voice. And it's time that we stood up to this drug epidemic 
and all the people that are involved in helping us. And we need to say what our voice is. And they're going to listen more to us and we're going to listen more to ourselves if we know what we're talking about. So now is the time, and probably past the time, but now is the time to get smart. Because when you look at this drug epidemic, these drugs are coming across the border or they're being manufactured in a town near you and they're being brought in and they're being manufactured by our family members. These are not aliens. These are not people from Iceland coming in and doing this to us. This is us doing it to us. These are our family members. This drug is destroying our families. This is, in effect, a genocide of the American family. This drug epidemic is out of control. And the one thing that we can do for ourselves is to get smart. And that material is not sitting out there in books where you can just sit there and say, great, if I buy this book, I'll know what I need to know. That doesn't exist. It hasn't been created yet. We've made a stab at it with the Family Solution Fighter four learning modules, study guide and workbooks, and, and, the, and, the, and the, these podcasts, and our TV, uh, 32 TV episode series titled Fentanyl and Families in Harm's Way. We keep repeating the content of this in a different variety of, of ways in order that it makes it more available for you to kind of experience, own, and use. And that's the real goal of everything that we're doing here. We would welcome you to participate in this. We would like you to start a Families Impacted by Opioids Center in your area, and we'll title it a Family Solution Finder Learning Center. And if that's something that you're interested in, we can give you that material to be able to do that. And all of this comes with that. But for right now, change is the topic. I want to thank you for joining us on today's episode of The Voice of Families and Addiction. And I want to wish you all the best possibilities that change can bring for you. God bless you. Stand up for yourself, and I'll back you up. 
these problems don't solve themselves. I'll tell you what, instead of would or could, I think you should draw a line in the sand and stand your ground. It's for your own good. <laughs>